everybody, and welcome to another edition of Entrepreneur Rx, where we help healthcare professionals own their future. Welcome back to Entrepreneurs Rx. I'm your host, John Schufelt, and I'm excited to be chatting with. I'm a little scared because, you know, when you chat with this psychiatrist, you're always thinking, my God, what are they diagnosing out of you? But it's uh, it's Jeannie Byrne. She's a board-certified adult psychiatrist, and she focuses on high-quality convenience and innovative care for patients in a total variety of healthcare settings. She's also the chief patient officer and co-founder of Belong Health, and she's coming out with a book. So, Jeannie, welcome. Thank you, Dr. John. Great to be here. As I as I say frequently, there's many people who hear this and go, okay, she is so cool. How did she get where she is? So give us a little speck of your background. How did you how did you get there? So the quick version is that like many people, it was a very meandering path. So I was not someone knew I wanted to be a doctor when I grew up. I was a music performance major. Uh, originally in college. And then I was a French major, mainly because I wanted to live overseas. And then I came back and landed in a brain and behavior class and just fell in love. So I would say most everything I've done in my career has circled around brain and behavior in some form or fashion, um, including, you know, doing basic science. I have a PhD in neurophysiology, clinical work in psychiatry and neurology, and then out into entrepreneurship, which I know we'll talk about, and national healthcare leadership, consulting, coaching. So you can hear from me. I, I like to learn new things. Uh, very, very curious. Um, but really, I would say most of it circles around brain and behavior in some form or fashion. Well, so what? Okay, where did you go to undergrad? University of Pennsylvania in Philly. What was your musical instrument? You probably had a couple, but what was what was your specialty? I had a couple. I started the, it's a funny story. I started on bassoon because I was a violin player and I learned that, you know, there are a lot of amazing violinists, but you can be a pretty mediocre bassoon player and be the best in the state. So I, uh, I took on bassoon cause it gave me more opportunities than violin. Wow. So you could, you, so I guess to be first chair in violin, you've got to be at the nth degree, but to be first chair in bassoon, you can be just pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. Nobody plays bassoon. It's pretty hard and, and awkward. So uh, yeah, you can be pretty mediocre. That's classic. So you, you are no pun intended. So, so you're the ultimate left brain, right brain person. You to do basic science, but then you also have this now writing and musical field. That's amazing. Yeah. And I talk about that in the book, but really this accessing creativity and, you know, I think a lot of doctors are actually pretty creative um, if you ask them, but to me, accessing the creative part of the brain has really opened up a lot for me um, in my career and and in the entrepreneurial work, as especially. Totally. Okay, so you went to Penn, and then you obviously took some time because you had to go back and do all your basic science, since it probably wasn't part of a soon plane. I crammed it all into about um, three semesters, believe it or not, and then I took a year out to go do research so that I could take my MCAT. So I had one year out, and then I got back on track. Wow. Okay. Where'd you go to medical school? Uh, NYU. Okay. So and I did the MD PhD program, the joint program at NYU um, with most of my clinical rotations at Bellevue. Wow. So did you ever, now this will be a dumb question because I probably know the answer. You know what I'm going to ask you? Did you ever read House of God? I did. And I, oh boy, we could talk so much about that book, but there's so much in there. You know, Bellevue is such a fascinating hospital in particular with such a rich history. And 
some of my best stories are really from my days at Bellevue, honestly. I can only imagine. Well, you know, as you know, Samuel Shem was a psychiatrist. Yep. And, um, yeah. And um, yeah, I, I read that book way young. And I don't know if it helped me or I'm not jaded, but it helped me or made, gave me a weird perspective of medicine because he certainly had a weird perspective. Yeah, I think psychiatrists, I always like psychiatry to surgery. Actually, people think they're very different. I think they're very similar because we really just get to the crux of the matter. We don't mess around. So I think he he had a very biting look at what he felt was the crux of being a doctor in what was then the modern hospital. So when you went to medical school after your neuroscience, did you did you think, okay, I'm going to be a neurosurgeon, neurologist, or psychiatrist? Or are you always like, no, I'm going to be a psychiatrist? No, I it was, again, brain and behavior was the focus. So I was really, really struggling between those three. The neurosurgery, um, it just seemed too, too long, honestly, at that point. <laughs> I've been in school forever already. Um, and then I love neurology. I just love neurology. But back then, it was kind of depressing. There weren't great treatments, and it's a very buttoned-up culture. Neural, you know, how each specialty has their own little culture. Neurologists tend to be very buttoned-up and I'm not terribly buttoned up. I can be, but I like the quirkiness of psychiatry, um, which again, that's a whole other topic. Psychiatry is known for being a little bit more quirky. Wait, did you say a little bit? <laughs> Just a little. Just a poquito. Um, all right. So how did, so you got out, did you start practicing just traditional psychiatry? Um, so I made a big leap of faith when I finally decided to you know, and my relationship with academic medicine and, and research, I made a leap of faith out of New York City down to North Carolina, which is where I live now. And I wanted to be out in the real world. So I took a job doing house calls, uh, driving all over the state of North Carolina for a geriatric. Yeah. Well, it was a geriatric medicine group and I was there for a psychiatrist because they knew there was such a need. And so I just, you know, they gave me a lot of autonomy to design kind of a consultative program and drove all around the state, learned geriatric psychiatry in the trenches, assisted living, skilled nursing and private homes. I did that for a couple of years. And then I got inspired to become an entrepreneur myself and to solopreneur. Well, I didn't start with that vision, but it ended up being a solopreneur um, group practice. So you you transitioned out of there and said I can do this myself and started doing was it virtual psychiatry or were you just no it was yeah it was still in in person I didn't want to be just a geriatric psychiatrist which I felt like that's where I was headed so the practice I started was adult psychiatry and it was just me looking at the wall no patients no money um, as many entrepreneurs do and I really wanted to create something that was what I would want if I were a patient, like I wanted to kind of recreate that whole experience. So it was in person. This was back in 2010. Um, although I did add in telehealth pretty quickly, um, which was not very popular or accepted back in, you know, 2011. Yes. I'm laughing because I started a virtual health company in 2010 called me and so, and the reason I started it was to do, because I'm, you know, I'm an EM physician and there's so many patients in the emergency department who have behavioral health issues, they were totally undertreated or untreated. I said, okay, yeah. this, is a clam, this is a slam dunk to do this virtually and got near zero. I had a great PhD with me, yeah. um, psychologist, and I had near zero acceptance. So we transitioned to you know typical, basically urgent care medicine virtually, and it, that's how it kind of took off. But my, my initial goal was 
was psychiatry, psychology. So I understand. Yeah. And, you know, the medical boards were not very supportive of telehealth. And so um, I, the reason I started doing it was because I lived down the street from UNC. So a lot of my patients were uh, students, just convenience. And, you know, they go home for the summer, they take a study a semester abroad and they were like, like, let's just have appointments. And I was like, no, I'm supposed to find you a doctor back at home and transfer care. You know, I was trying to do it like according to the oh, rules, boy. but it, it didn't make any sense. It was impossible. And so eventually I was like, okay, let's just try it. You know, you're adept with video communication and let's just try it. And then I documented the wazoo out of everything to try to protect myself. And I just did it because it was the right thing to do and it made sense, but it wasn't popular or really accepted back then. No. And did you have trouble? Was it all cash pay? It was. I tell people, you know, I wasn't smart enough to come up with uh, insurance backed psychiatry practice that would keep my bills paid. So I wasn't smart enough to do that. And I don't know anybody who was really smart enough to do that, but I, I would have liked to not be cash, but it just wasn't an option. Yeah, particularly at the time. So talk to me about Belong Health. Yeah, so Belong Health is a very exciting organization. It's, um, as of right now, about two years old, you know, startup. We have a Series A funding cycle. And it was really designed um, to meet the need of what we were seeing for some of the underserved populations that are dual eligible, meaning Medicare and Medicaid eligible. So those are typically either people over 65 with Medicare who are impoverished or people who are under 65 who have a disability, putting them on Medicare. So these are really complex, sick patients, and it's really hard to take care of them. And the health systems and the health plans are very, very complex because some of them are state-based and some of them are federal-based. So a dual eligible health plan is designed to help them. So Belong was designed to work with uh, regional health plans to to do joint ventures to really um, create dual eligible plans that were going to meet the needs of the patients and be fiscally responsible under value-based care. Was it was it focused on behavioral health or was it focused on whatever value-based care need they had? Yeah, whatever value-based care, whole person care, whatever you want to call it. But of course, in this population, we know that mental health and substance use and all those other things, the prevalence is even higher than the general population. So that's obviously a big part of it, too. Was that your first non-behavioral health sort of venture? No. Uh, prior to Belong, I was working at an organization called Caremore Health, which is now under Elevance, under Anthem. And Caremore uh, was also known for being very innovative in Medicare, Medicaid space. And I started with them as their chief behavioral health officer nationally, but then they really liked what I did. And I quickly took on all of specialty care and post-acute care. So I had had executive wow. leadership positions with whole person, what you know, what you call whole yeah. person care. Um, and then I have some consulting clients that are whole person care as well. So my ideal portfolio of work includes both behavioral health specific, mental health specific, and whole person. And I like to do health tech too. Wow. You're back to left brain, right brain. Exactly. Yep. So what projects are you focused on now? 
So most of my time is with Belong. They're kind of, um, so I'm a co-founder. I'm not the chief clinical officer. I hired the chief clinical officer who is amazing, Dr. Uh, Ramon Jacobs Shaw. And um, I also spend some time consulting um, with other typically healthcare companies that are doing a pivot or need to upskill their leadership or doing an acquisition. I'll work with them for like, you know, a brief amount of time. And then I like to do coaching. I typically have like a couple coaching clients at a time, typically physicians, again, who are either in leadership roles or looking to make a change. Um, And then, as I mentioned, I wrote my first book, um, which is a really a lay press nonfiction book on the future of work through the lens of brain and behavior. And that's coming out um, very, very soon. Um, So, you know, again, you can hear, I like to do a lot of different things. I feel like for me, connecting the dots between ideas and people is what I think I really bring value and impact. So sometimes I'm connecting ideas between um, people and sometimes it's between organizations. So doing more than one thing, I find adds to everybody. It's very um, synergistic. No, I, I definitely like that approach. And it's the whole connected, it's the Steve Jobs connected dots backwards sort of mentality that it all makes sense retrospectively, but it's, it's hard to do right. it. It's Soren Kierkegaard, life, you know, life has to be lived in the rearview mirror. Life has to be lived for, but it's looked at in the rearview mirror. What have you found now in your coaching and entrepreneurial? Are there some archetype entrepreneurs that you found to be more successful, more apt to success than others, than other archetypes? Archetypes, I guess. That's a great question. Um, I find a lot of the people who go into entrepreneurship, especially physicians, are people who are either fixers, like I'm in a system, I don't like it, I want to fix it. Like, I just want to fix problems. And then you have kind of the visionary folks who really see things differently and want to create something really differently. And then I've met a number of people in more recent years coming out of like the venture capital world who are more like this built for purpose where they kind of go out into the white space and try to figure out what's the next best thing. So those are the main types I've, I've worked with in terms of like, who's most successful. Gosh, that's a great, I mean, I, in healthcare right now, things are so wide open, as you know, that like, there's so much space to innovate and improve that I, I think that all three can be successful. It's more that you have to know your own limitations and bring partners or people to help you who meet things that you aren't good at. So if you're a visionary, you need to make sure you have a good loyal skeptic by your side, right. To help keep you grounded. If you're, um, somebody who just wants to fix things, you might need somebody who, um, is a little less operational, a little bit more people oriented to kind of help you. So I think the the myth for me is the solopreneur, which I tried to do myself. And I learned maybe the hard way that there are things that I probably could have gotten help with earlier in the solopreneur journey. So I think everyone can be successful, especially in healthcare, but it's really like that self-awareness and making sure that you're bringing in people to help you at the right time. Where, where do you land in those three archetypes you talk? I know you do the solopreneur stuff, but where do you land in those three archetypes? I just recently did my Enneagram. I don't know if you've ever done that. Um, I like to do these kind of assessments and I'm an enthusiastic visionary, which I think is pretty accurate. If I'm honest with myself, I've done the other things too, but at my core, I think that's who I am. 
So I can, as you know, you heard, I like to do a lot of different things. Sometimes I need people to pull me down to earth and say, that's great, Jenny, but that's like, you know, 20 years in the future. Like, can you reel it back to like today? Because you're, you're way out ahead of, of where we are today. I would probably, it's funny you said that, Jenny, I would probably describe myself the same way. So really? who, is your, who is your bring you back to earth person? Or do you have a well, number of different ones for different businesses? I have a couple. I would say that the most important one in my life is my husband. <laughs> he is definitely my loyal skeptic partner. He's an attorney by training. So he's got that like paranoia that lawyers have. <laughs> um, so he's by far my, my biggest help in life. I would say, um, he's very important. And then I've had people, um, one of the things attracted me to working at belong, for example, as a startup is I can be part of the hiring and bring on people that compliment me and the other leaders like the CEO and pay attention to the interpersonal dynamics and think about building a team. And I think we've built an incredible team, like truly kind of incredible team. And, and that has been really enjoyable. So now I'm a little bit more self-aware. I'm getting older and getting more self-aware and helping other people be self-aware too. And, and thinking about the people components, I've enjoyed that quite a bit. How was, so I used to be involved in a business that we would, there was physician coaching. And when I say involved, I kind of started it, but I had psychologists who were doing the day to day and the group that we focused on was nurse. And I know this will be an enigma to you, but narcissistic physicians, mostly men, uh, mostly surgeons, and they were top of their game, but their medical staff or the hospital would engage us to work with them um, to try to coach them into normality or becoming self-aware. And so what the psychologist, the psychologist told me was there, this is an incurable disease, but you have to teach people. We don't try to cure the problem. We teach people how to act in the community. Like when someone says this to you, here's a normal response, not, mm -hmm. not even typically having. So as you're trying to, as you're working with these companies and you're trying to build this culture, what are you looking for and how are you trying to engage some of these folks that may be uncoachable? Well, if I have the choice on who to hire or who to bring in, I'm really looking for people who are um, curious, people who are learners, um, and people who um, are open to change and trying things. If I have the choice to bring that in. Cause if you have someone who's curious and open, you know, you can really move quickly, but let's say you're working with somebody who isn't that way by nature. Um, I think I focus on self-awareness, you know, like that's a first step, like at least know yourself and trying to get them to feel some interest or comfort level with that. And then I think the idea right now you know, after years of pandemic living, the idea of empathy is really um, out there in a way that it wasn't before. And empathy can be trained. Even if you're not a naturally empathetic person, compassion is a little different. So empathy is kind of an umbrella term and there are different types of empathy. One of which is compassionate empathy, where you actually feel someone else's pain. Is that the and empath? Yeah. That's what most people think of when you say empathy, they think of compassionate, like I feel what you feel. And that's one type of empathy, but there's a more intellectualized type of empathy, which is I can put myself in your shoes and imagine what you're thinking or you're feeling, even if I don't think it or feel it. 
And most people can train to do that through, you know, active listening or other skills. And I always give the example, and I wrote this in the book too, you know, I was not naturally good at that. Um, I train, you know, psychotherapists train years and years. We train how to like be good listeners and you train on how to be empathetic. And so it is a skill that can be trained. You have to be open to it though. So in the case of a surgeon, you know, they have to, there has to be some why for them to want to do it. Otherwise they're just not going to do it. So if the why is all your nurses are quitting after three months of being in the OR with you, maybe that's powerful enough. Why? Or if the why is like, you know, we're going to fire you. We can't take it anymore. That could be a why. So if there's enough, those are the whys. You have to have the why, but if there's no why and you're just trying to get physicians to change their behavior, I mean, we're human. We're like everyone else. Like, why would we change unless there's a reason? So you have to find the why. I think sometimes that's a big part of it. So when you're looking at building these cultures and you find somebody who's not necessarily, at least at this point, a cultural fit, so you, you've probably seen that four quadrants, you know, the cu- culture and competence. And if you're in this, the upper yeah. right quadrant, you're a keeper, you know, we'll do whatever we can to keep you. But if you're in the high competence and low culture, I've always struggled with this group. What do you do? And they, they're usually, you know, if you listen to Jack Welch or others, you're usually like a one-shot deal. Like, okay, here's where you need to be, blah, blah, blah. But the th- general theory is, and I kind of found it to be true, they're probably not savable. What, what have you found? Because you're going to be the expert on this. I would say if somebody is not a culture fit for your organization and different places have different cultures, right? So you might be a fit right. at one culture and not a fit at another. Um, when I've managed folks or worked with folks like this, um, first of all, I try to use my empathy, right? I try to really understand where they're coming from. And if I can't imagine it, I just ask them, like, can you explain to me, you know, I, I've observed this tell me like what that, you know, what that comes from or what that is. And then if the person feels that you're invested in them and that you actually care about them as a human being by being curious about them, then you kind of have the come to Jesus, which is what we call it down South, right? Come to Jesus talk, which is like, Hey, this is you. From what I understand, this is you. This is the behaviors I'm observing. This is the culture of the company. I, I, I think there's a, disconnect here. What do you think? And if they say, yeah, there's a disconnect too. then I say, well, maybe this isn't the right place. And if they say, well, I don't think there's a disconnect, then you say, well, let's get curious and dig a little deeper. But in terms of being salvageable or not, um, sometimes it's just behavior. Sometimes they are an okay fit, but they're just doing behaviors that are not a fit. And you, through self-awareness, they can, see their behaviors better. And then sometimes they're just not a culture fit, but if they're not a culture fit, I think the best thing to do is just, again, try to say, Hey, I respect you as a person. I just don't, this just isn't the right fit. Let me help you. And then I actually help them find a better fit. I'll be like, I think this place would be good. Do you want me to call someone over there and introduce you? Or like, I care about you as a human being. I just don't think this is the right place for you. And that's been kind of my approach, but where I, where I, deviate is I usually say to them, like, here's where I see you. Here's where you have to be. I can't mm-hmm. always because I don't have your training. I, I don't, I don't go into the why you're like, how did you get here? Like, did your parents not hit you enough or whatever? Um, but I, but most people I say this to, they look at me like, what? Like, I, I can't believe you don't think you don't think I'm a fit here. So I'm, I'm clearly missing something in my delivery. Well, I think if you can keep the curiosity there and be like, well, 
you know, you know, I'm curious. I, I say this a lot. I'm like, I'm curious. Like, what do That's you good. think is the culture here? And what do you think, what are your values and the culture values here? Like, tell me, I'm cur- I'm just curious. Like, what do you think? And, you know, and then your delivery and your tone has to match that. You can't, you can't be sarcastic. You, you have to be genuinely curious. And I always tell, you know, when I coach, I find that a lot of leaders, because they're switching gears a lot in their day, and then they have these conversations that are like hard, they're not really prepared to have the conversation within themselves. So to show up with that like neutral, non-judgmental, curious attitude, you have to be calm, collected, you know, like you have to be in a good space. You can't be multitasking. So you got to prepare yourself. And I think most leaders undervalue or, or don't realize how much it takes. You have to take care of yourself to show up with that right energy. And they don't, I don't think they invest enough in like the energy that they show up in. And when you're a leader and you've seen this, I'm sure everyone's watching you, you know, the CEOs in the room, every little movement you make or every gesture, you, you know, people are watching and to show up with the right energy. It's really hard. Like you have to really take care of yourself and be self-aware. That's a great point. What do you, what advice do you have for physicians who say, look, I want to, I want to be, I want to be you when I grow up. What, and I want to be, you know, I'm, I've done X, Y, Z for a number of years, but I want to change the world. I want to be an entrepreneur, but I don't know where to start. Cause I think a lot of folks who listen to this are going to be in that world of like, what you guys are doing sounds really cool. I want to do it. What do you tell them? I would tell them a couple of things. I would tell them, first of all, especially if you're a woman or another underrepresented group, I would say don't look for role models because role models will lead you astray. The the person you want to be, the leader you want to be may not exist. You may not find them out there. So try to take mentorship away, like ideas and things from people, but don't look for like a perfect role model because they just, I, I never didn't feel like one existed for me. Um, so, so mentors can lead you astray. I guess that would be my first tip. Um, my second tip was again, just get to know yourself. You got to know yourself. What are your core values? What is meaningful to you? What is, you know, the perfect day, the perfect week, the perfect month look like. And if you may need to do some introspective work before you're ready to go out in the world, whether that's a therapist doing personality assessments with a coach, like whatever that is, but you got to really know yourself first. Um, and then I think for me, I try, I, I I like to plan. I was a planner as a kid, right? I like to plan stuff out and I think it's good to have a plan, but over time, what's been more helpful is like, what am I going to say yes to? And what am I going to say no to? And then managing my time. So making sure that like, I say no to things and get things off my plate. And again, that's where the self-awareness comes in. Like, what is important to me? What are the things I want to do? And what are the things that aren't important to me? I'm just going to have someone else do them. And so I tell women, especially who are interested in this, you know, for me, I don't like taking care of my house. So I don't, you know, I'm fortunate enough as a physician leader to have funding. So I don't cook. I don't clean. I don't literally do anything. All my time, my quality time at home is with me and my kids or me and my husband, like the house, I just kind of don't care about. That's me. You know, for someone else, it could be something, maybe they love to cook, but it's something else. So, you know, 
deciding what's not important to you and then just don't do those things. And and you have to really be firm in yourself to do that because there's a lot of society pressure to do things as a man or a woman or, you know, so just being you and like making your time reflect what's important to you. That's phenomenal advice. And I've, I learned, I'm still learning it. And I learned it way late as far as the saying no and spending your time on the things that you derive the most joy or value from. And, you know, I was definitely the, okay, fine, I'll do it. As opposed to learning to say no. I mean, and I'm probably a pleaser just from my nature. So that made it more difficult. And a lot of physicians are, right? And I think the the final thing I would say is like, it's taken me a long time to realize this, but sometimes not working, working quote unquote, makes work much better. The quality of your actual work sometimes is improved by things that are not work at all, whether that's exercise or for me, music or whatever, like not working is often where your brain cooks up the best stuff. And if you want to be an entrepreneur, especially like doing non-work things sometimes is where your best ideas come from. I'm sure you've had those experiences like in the shower or on a walk or right, like, or vacation or whatever. And then like, sometimes your best entrepreneurial ideas come to you in those moments when you're not working at all. Totally shower and running for me. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I always laugh. I'm like, that's kind of weird, but yeah, shower. Um, well, any final thoughts on those folks who want to be, who want to be you? What did you, what, what did you say? God, you know, if I had known now, if I had known that what I know now, I would have done something differently. What, what different would you have done? Difference would you have done? Oh gosh. I don't know if I would have done that whole PhD to be honest with you, that was one of those things where I had loss aversion. I had sunk cost into that thing and it took me five years. And I probably, I probably should have taken the masters and cut off three years. Um, I think that was one, I think the other thing, um, and I don't know if this is as me as a woman leader in particular, but knowing my value was really hard. Um, you know, medical school and everything just trains you to be humble and be a servant. And I think that's beautiful, but you know, we got student loans is like everyone else. And like, so knowing my value, I think that was a hard one. Um, having a good partner, I mentioned my husband, like that has been so important. Wow. I had no idea like how important that would be. Um, and then just again, knowing myself and being comfortable taking risks that I knew other people wouldn't approve of you know, especially family. I don't have an entrepreneurial family except for, I have one sister who is, but they were very, um, you know, non-entrepreneurial, shall we say. Yeah. That's, that's where I come from as well. But yeah, it's funny. Like, what are you doing? You have an MD PhD and you're doing what you're wasting your, (laughs) I can, you'd almost hear it. And and just this year, you know, they're like, you're writing a book. Why are you writing a book? That has nothing to do with this, but I, I know myself and I know, I know what works at this point for me and, and it'll change in the future, but, um, but that's okay. I think you, the more you spend time with yourself and, and just kind of feeling confident in that, like, that's really important. Well, you know, one thing you said really struck, and I think we are guilty of this physicians and probably female physicians even more so is that we don't recognize our value um, oh yeah. And if we recognize it, we don't argue for it. Um, yeah. I mean, I probably still way under bill and all sorts of things because I'm like, oh, it's fine. 
Right. And we're, and money is very uncomfortable. And that was something took me a couple years of psychotherapy on the couch with my own therapist to get through. That was a hard one for me. No kidding. Really? Mm -hmm. Yep. New York on the couch. I even, I, I got to the point where I was even like lying down on the couch, like old school. Wow. All right. Well, so clearly I have have some work to do. (laughs) That's possible. Jenny, this has been really cool. Thank you very much. I'm really impressed. Where can people find out more about you and where where are you? Where's your book going to be? So best place to follow me is LinkedIn. Um, So Dr. Jenny Byrne on LinkedIn. Um, I have a website, drjennyburn.com. The book is called Work Smart. Use your brain and behavior to master the future of work. It'll be on Amazon. So you could search Amazon for my name, Jenny Byrne, and then uh, Work Smart. And um, I, I love meeting new folks and spreading the word. So please, I hope people will reach out to me, especially other physicians who are trying to figure it out. That's kind of near to my heart, one of my favorite groups to work with. That's awesome. Now, do you have a book on Audible? Will it come out on Audible too? It will. I actually have to record it. I've never done this before. That'll be another first for me this summer. I'm going to be doing the audiobook. I will tell you, it's tremendously harder than you think. Oh, no. Yeah. I bet. I bet it will be. Everything, when you know, the writing the book, and again, you've been through this too. Like every time you do something, you're like, wow, that was hard. Everything else will be easy. And then you go the next thing. Oh, wow, that was really hard. Really so hard. Every, everything is hard. Yeah. Well, I, I, I want to talk to you after you record it because I literally realized all my imperfections while I was reading these books. I'm like, I suck. Classic. <laughs> well, Jenny, thank you very much. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank it. you. Pleasure. It's a pleasure to be here. And I, I hope, uh, wish all the best wishes to your entrepreneurial audience for, for the new year. Thank you very much. Well, folks, thanks. This has been another great conversation, Jenny. Thank you. And uh, we'll see you soon. Thanks for listening to another great edition of Entrepreneur Rx. To find out how to start a business and help secure your future, go to johnshufeltmd.com. Thanks for listening.